time any of the children, if it's time to go, we'll be going right out this way. We have that opportunity to do that. Anymore, now's the time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in, in, in listening to these songs and to singing them to your presence and your honor, we recognize how great a God you really are, how thankful we are of who you are, what you've done, and what you've done for us, and the difference that it makes in our lives. We ask that you would be with us now, help us, encourage us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've, been, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know, we've been doing a series, and the series that we've been doing is taking us from the time of Samuel to the time of Saul, and now we're picking up, coming into this thing where, now, um, where David is now coming to it. And if you were with us last week, you may remember that we were looking at this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 16. And in that passage, we had an interesting thing that was going on. This is where God told Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. And there in Bethlehem, I'm going to tell you that there's a guy there I'm going to meet. And of course, what happened then, he did. He went and he met, and he talked and took to the first, he went to the guy and talked to him. And what he did, he took Eliab, and he said, there's Eliab, he's so great, he's tall, he's the oldest, he must be the one. The guy said, no, let me try number two. No, number three, all the way down, seven, no. And finally he said, this is it, you don't have any more? And he goes, well, you know, there's one more that's out there in the fields, but he's just a young guy taking care of the sheep. And he said, we're not going to sit down until it, we see that king, that young man. And of course, the story is, you know, he came in and he said, you know what? He poured the oil on him, anointed him and saying, you will be the king. And as we see in that phrase, that the Lord said, anoint him for he is the one. And then that important phrase, and the spirit of the Lord took control of him. We mentioned that phrase as being an important phrase because we know in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God comes, as in the Old Testament, comes on a person for a time, for the time that they need it, and then it's gone. But it seems to be suggesting that maybe at this point, David has like the permanent thing of the Holy Spirit upon him, which is possible, we're not sure. But what we see is here is here this is going on at the same time that David is being anointed Things are going worse for Saul because of his disobedience. In fact, if you look at this one, it's Pat, we're now jumping into this week's passage. It's the end of 16 and the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to jump around a little bit. There's some areas of repetition and we'll move a little bit past them. But I want to pick up our reading here in verse 14. This is right after David gets the spirit. But now, David, now Saul gets a spirit and it ain't the kind of spirit you want. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. Now notice this phrase. And an evil spirit from the Lord began to torment him. Now let's stop for a second. There's many of us that go, whoa, that's a little weird, isn't it? We don't have any other thing like that in the Old Testament up to this point. And a lot of people start trying to find a good way to get God off the hook. Well, it was the devil. That was the devil that was actually they were doing it. But look at the passage again. An evil spirit from the Lord began to torment him. 
so Paul's servants, excuse me, Saul's servants said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Twice it makes the point that God is the one who sent that. Now what's important about this is God is not sending him to do evil, but he is sending him to bring him, that he would be troubled, that he'd be dealing with a hard thing because of his disappointment, God's disappointment in what he had done. He would not be a full follower of God when God gave him the rules of what he needed to do. And so it's a strange verse, but it's a powerful verse because one, David is getting the spirit, then the one who's after this, we talk about Saul, he's losing the spirit. The only spirit he's getting is one that troubles him. So let's go on if we go into this passage. In verse 16, it says, Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the harp. Saul's got these problems. And they said, boy, he seems to like music. Probably a lot of people here, when they're really troubled, things are going on, music helps them. Right, Chuck? Can music be a help for people when they're troubled? Absolutely. And dancing even twice as good. Yes, Chuck about it. Twice as good. That's right. Okay? So the point is, oh, boy, this poor guy, our king, is troubled. What are we going to do about it? He said, let's get somebody that can play the harp. So let our Lord command your servant here in the presence to look for someone who knows how to play the harp. Whenever the evil spirit from God troubles you, that person can play the harp and you'll feel better. And then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who knows how to play well and bring him to me. And it's interesting, here you have this thing that goes on a little bit. Saul sends for David to play the harp and David ends up being in Saul's army. And of course, there's all these things going on like, wait a minute, Saul, you don't realize it, but this young man who knows to play the harp, he's pretty brave, by the way, He's going to be taking your place. Now, I don't think he knows that now, but when he does, there's going to be a lot of struggle going on. And so what we have in this passage, it continues to go on this way in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the famous David and Goliath passage. And you all know the phrase, you know, familiarity brings contempt. When you know something so bad, you say, yeah, yeah, I've been there. I saw it on VeggieTales. It's a wonderful story. David wins. Can't you make this like a three- we all know what the story is about. Stay with me, okay? Because it is important. So this is the part about David and Goliath. Well, let's look at the passage here as it comes up. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Silcah in Judah, and they camped between Silcah and Azekah in Ephes Damin. Doesn't that just touch your heart right there? <laughs> the next passage helps a little bit. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they lined in battle formation to face the Philistines. Now notice the situation. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were on the other hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. So in other words, you've got, you've got the fact, you've got, I'm going to say the Pharisees, wrong, wrong. Philistines over here. You've got the Israelites over here. And in there, this is, what we have is a little ravine, a, a wadi, they sometimes call it, going along. In other words, at some point, they're going to go, ready, go, and these two forces come in and start the battle. And so it is a time of great struggle, and obviously, Saul must be terrified. The Philistines had been their perennial enemy for generations. And it would be something if they just had a normal army, but they have got the big boy. They've got Goliath, and everybody's terrified. Verse 4, then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. Notice this, he was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale of armor that weighed 125 pounds. Now, I checked on the internet, which is always correct, as you know. Um, 
it said, as far as we know, that the tallest man that we can say that we absolutely saw him and took measurements was a guy uh, by the name of Robert Wadlow. He was 8 foot 11. That's a tall guy. But it was not a normal kind of thing. He had some kind of pituitary something that made him grow enormously. As far as they know, that's the one we know that's the biggest. It's pretty close to Goliath, by the way, except the picture of this guy, he's really, really skinny. And all his clothes had to be custom made. That's another story. As far as it goes, as far as today, the tallest man alive is um, a guy in China. And he's 7 foot 9 inches. Well, that's big. And probably every you know, guy who plays sports probably wants to get them into their team. But notice what it said here. He's 9 foot inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. Now think about that. They're probably soldiers there in the thing that they weighed 125 pounds. And here's a guy that even just his armor is 125 pounds. So in other words, this is a really loaded guy. This guy is like a mobile tank. You know, he's got all the equipment. He's got all the things he needs. So notice what happens. There was bronze armor on his shins, greaves, I'm told they call it. And a bronze sword was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam. And notice this, and the iron point, it said the iron point of a spear weighed 15 pounds. Now think about that. We've been hearing about all these things about bronze, bronze, bronze. Here we have a thing where it comes in with, when we're talking about iron. Iron was much more expensive, and they were just starting to learn how to really use it. But boy, it was good at the tip of an arrow. And so he had a really big arrow and a really big thing to shoot. So it said, the iron point in the spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. So make sure you get the picture. Okay, here is this giant of a guy. He's got all the stuff you need to be a great warrior. Not only that, but he's got a guy who walks with a great big shield. So if things start flying, he's going to be the guy that gets it and protect the big guy. I don't imagine that he ran too fast, but he was sure big. But they had a guy to protect him. So notice what happens here. He, Goliath, stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why don't you come up to line up in battle formations, he asked. Am I not a Philistine? Aren't you a servant of Saul? Choose one of your men. Have him come down against me. So I think they call this, like in sports, trash talk. You lousy looking guy, why don't you come in? Why are you gutless? You can't come over the ravine and come get me? I dare you. Come on over here. I'll show you a thing or two. Things are really looking bad for the Israelites. Then the Philistine said, excuse me, then, to, then the Philistine said, I, de uh, I defy the ranks of Israel today. That phrase defy, by the way, occurs six times in this little passage. It has this idea to defy, to mock, to reproach, the same verb. Harap, harap in uh, Hebrew is what it is. It's that idea of, I defy you, I re to reproach against you. Six times this occurs in here, saying, do you see what this happened? This is not just a battle between a couple people. This is something we're putting you down. We're going to make you eat the dirt. We're going to make sure that we destroy you. And it's saying, what happens is, when Saul and the Israelites heard the words of the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. No wonder they were terrified. I would be like, feet don't fail me now. I'm getting out of here. And so here they are. They've got a giant of a guy ahead of them. Now, if you go in the next to this passage, what you see is we're going to skip along just a little bit here. 
to go back to verse 10, there's a section here that talks about the names of his brothers, talks about how they got food for it, and then we pick up the, rat, the story again in verse 20. So David got up early in the morning, his father told him, go check on your brothers, and let the, he left the flock with someone to keep him, loaded up, and he set out as Jesse had instructed him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp that the army was marching out to the battle formation, shouting their battle cry. So get the picture. Two, there's a ravine, Philistines, Israelites, and they're yelling at each other. You know, I'm going to beat you. You wait to see what I do for you. It's going back and forth. And notice what happens in this one, this next section. Israel, the Israelites, and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster, and he ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were, and it wasn't a very good meeting. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line, and he shouted the usual words, which David heard. Once again, the trash talks going back and forth, how I'm going to kill you, we're going to take care of you, all that stuff. Now notice this, verse 24. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. I think terrified is not strong enough to describe how scared these people were. And remember, they didn't have anybody that came even close to this. They didn't have iron tools and iron arrows the way they did. They were under a huge struggle because the Philistines were much better uh, in, in warfare. When all the Israel saw Goliath, they retreated from terrified. Previously, an Israelite might have declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes out to defy. There's that word again. He's not just trying to beat us. He's trying to defy us. He's trying to put us down. He's trying to make sure he's going to humble us by what we're going to do with them in the war. And they said, well, what are you going to do? He said that we'll take somebody. If someone will help us and, and fight for us, We'll give him a whole lot of stuff. Like what? Well, it says, well, the king will make the man who kills his, uh, excuse me, the king will make the man who kills him, that is Goliath, very rich, and will give him his daughter. Oh, poor daughter. You don't get a choice in this. You know, if this guy does kill him, you go to be with this guy. The king will also make a household of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. In other words, the guys are terrified, so he's trying to up how good this is going to be if you'll do it. In other words, you're going to be rich, you're going to be, have a princess to marry, that's always helpful, and no taxes. That's the best thing of all, no taxes. So what's the, you know, so what's the, great, I'll take it. You've got to go beat that big guy over there. You mean the nine foot, nine pound guy? Yeah, that guy. Like, really? Yeah. I don't know if that's worth it. I'd actually like to go home with my wife and children instead of have to face this guy. So notice what happens in this next passage. David spoke to the men who were standing there. And he wants to clarify this because this sounds like a pretty good package. What will be done to the man who kills that Philistine and removes the disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And I love that phrase. Talk about the armies of the living God. He knows that his God is alive unlike all these other gods and goddesses that they talk about. So notice what happens in the next passage. The people told him the offer. In other words, here's what he said. You're going to get rich, you're going to get a bride, and you're going to get no taxes. So the people told him the offer, said, that's what will be done for the man who kills him. 
Now, David's oldest brother, Eliab, now he's a guy that, remember, that Saul came to there, excuse me, Samuel came, said, I want to see your sons. Eliab was the first one. He was tall. He was good looking. Everybody said, he's the man. He's going to be the next king. And Saul said, sorry, Samuel said, no, I'm sorry, he's not. Let's try number two. And he's not the one. Then they went through the whole deal. And so what happens is it said, what will be done to the man who kills him? David's old brother Eliab listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with them. Now stop for a minute. Why would his brother be angry with his brother? Why would Eliab be so angry with David? There's probably a couple things going on. He said, why did you come here? Who, do you, who did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. Was, oh, okay, you just didn't want to have to take care of sheep anymore. So you're going to come down and watch the big battle going on. What are you doing down here? Why should you be here? And you have to really feel for David in one sense. It's like, duh, why are you doing this? Jealousy? Eliab was the one that everybody thought was going to be the king. But God and Samuel said no. So he already had a reason not to like his brother. The other thing was, it's like, why would this punk kid be going around here thinking that he's going to ever marry a princess? He'd like to do that, but if that means have to take on Goliath, I can go without that one. So notice what happens in this passage. Well, what have I done now? Protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside to him to ask them in front of him and to ask them about the offer. The people gave him the same answer before. Well, okay, we've said this now for the third time, David. You got it? You get rich, you get a princess, and you get no taxes. And they said, you're sure of that? Absolutely. Let me think about it for a minute. This is about as big as it gets. So notice this next passage. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now you can imagine all the warriors around there going, yeah, kid, punk kid's going to come in and take on the big guy, right? Sure. He said, no, don't be discouraged. I'll fight the Philistine if you want. But, Dave, but Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. He's been a warrior since he was young. He's not a young man now, but he's powerful. And everybody's terrified of him. And you're not the one that's going to do this. Now, notice how David answered. David answered Saul, you know, your servant, talking about himself, has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down. I rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I'd grab it by its fur and I'd strike it down and kill it. In other words, saying, hey, this is not like the first time I've been to the rodeo, but guys. In other words, I know what it's like to have to be in dangerous things. You know, they had lions back then. That's dangerous. A bear was dangerous. He said, I took them both on and I'm still here to tell you about it. And so you're saying, I'm too young, I can't do it. I think I can. And again, do you remember that phrase, the living God? It's because I have the living God that I have the faith to be able to do that. Your servant, describing himself again, has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine, that's a bad thing to say to them. They don't like that. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. For, notice this. He's defied the armies of the living God. I serve the living God. Saul, so I hope you're serving the living God. And there's nobody here other than me that's willing to take on this guy. He said, if there's a living God who really keeps his promises, the covenant he made with us, why are we all so afraid? I'll take him on. 
And they're thinking, oh, this is youth bravado. Somebody go take the kid back home before he hurts himself. But Saul has very few options anymore, as we see in the next passage. Then David said, you know what? The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. That is great faith. If I could do it with, the, with those two creatures, I can do it with a man. Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Saul then had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on David's head and he had him put on armor. David strapped his sword over the military clothes and he tried to walk, but he wasn't used to them. I can't walk in these, David said. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Now notice that thing that he took him off. He already now doesn't have armor. He doesn't have all the things that Goliath has. So in other words, he's even more vulnerable to be killed by this guy. He's got a huge guy, and the guy's got a guy that's holding up, this, this, up there to keep him and protect him. Now notice the verse. Instead, he took in his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and he put them in his pouch. If you're aware, throwing rocks like that, not just throwing rocks at people, but a sling is really, really powerful. It goes way back from what the early you know, work archaeology. They have found places where there's like 500 round balls that they made out of clay that they used for it. In fact, Judges chapter 20, there's an interesting passage that said at that point they had 700 slingers. Slingers are guys that are good with a sling who can get it out there and kill a person with it. In fact, now at that point, this point, they're already starting to use steel ones, not steel, but iron ones, which were very dangerous. If someone flung one of those and you got it right between the eyes, it could be one that could kill you. So again, this was very common that they would use stones. Uh, and, and we read in the Egyptian things that they had group, big groups of them who would use stones in battle. Said so then with a sling in his hands, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the, sheer, she, the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw him, he despised them because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. It's like, you're letting this kid come out and fight me? I mean, aren't you sort of dissing me by thinking that I can't take this guy? I could do this blindfolded and kill this guy. So it's like it's even making him madder by the fact that they're sending out a young guy. And so notice what happens. He said to David, am I a dog that you come across me with sticks? Then he cursed David, notice this, by his gods, by the name of Dagon, by the name of Asherah. I'm going to kill this kid, and we're going to take it out. And then after I kill him, we're going to come take out all you guys. Come here, the Philistine called to David. I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a dagger, a spear, and a sword. And I love this phrase, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth. Sabaoth is that thing of like the, the, the battles or the, the people that are in the battles. I, give, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's army. You have defied him. Here's that word defied coming in. That's what you continue to do. You're putting down our religion. You're putting down who we are. And I'm telling you because of the no, I know who God is. I'm willing to take this on. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Today, David said, I'm going to hand you over. Today, I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut your head off and give the corpse to the Philistine camp, to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know, notice this phrase, that Israel has a God. 
And the whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or by spirit or by the that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. Whoop, went too far. The battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. And what a beautiful picture of a guy. He is young. He doesn't know all about battles or anything. But he knows God. And because he knows his God, that changes everything. So notice real quickly, we're coming then. When the Philistines started to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistines. David put his hand in the bag. He took out a stone, slung it, and he hit the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. Must have, the ground must have shook when this guy hits the ground. Dunk! He's dead. David ran, stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine sword, pulled it out from a sheath, and he used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. What a lovely picture we have on our bulletin today, by the way. You might want to put that up on your... No, don't think about it. Um, but, I mean, that became one of the more interesting passages a lot of people would want to, people who were artists wanted to do. But notice, if you will, just two things I want you to think of before we leave. And it's this. This whole thing of David, of recognizing who is his God. I want you to think about this. Because you see here, like David's high view of God, much higher than Saul. He had a view of God that's great. Just, this is David speaking, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What is wrong with you guys? Don't you believe all this? Don't you believe that God is bigger than this guy, Goliath? Why is it that I'm, who knows, 18 years old and there's nobody else else that will take this guy on? Again, this idea of a high view of God in his holiness, and not only in his holiness, but in his power. And that's the, one of the great things we see in David that we're going to see again and again as we move through the series about talking about David. It's amazing to see how this man grows in faith and he shows his faith. There's a book that um, some of you have read, and you haven't, you should, well, it wasn't there. Somehow it didn't come out. There's a book by J.B. Phillips that if you haven't read it, you should. It's called Your God is Too Small. It was made in, uh, published in 1952. It's a little bit harder to read than it was in 1952, but it's still worth reading. And it is a wonderful book saying, do you realize particularly how we in the West have domesticated God all the way through here? He's sort of a little God now. We wanted to bring him down to our size. Part of this was, was preachers like me. We wanted to make sure that God was somehow we could relate to. So he's our good buddy in this guy. He's my Facebook friend. We just want to make sure we're good buddies. That's different, though. We want to know the holiness of God and the fact that God is other. God is different from what we are. And if we get away from that, we're going to lose the whole idea of what it means to have a relationship with God. J.B. Phillips said, your God may be too small. Back in the wonderful days uh, in Princeton, not far from where I grew up, at Princeton Seminary, they had some of the most remarkable uh, guys that were there in the different departments. And one of them, I think it's Gretchen Machen, but I may be wrong, but I could not find the one. But I think it was Machen. And what was interesting, when the first guy started, when the guys started coming in at the beginning of the semester, he would ask each of them one question. As they came in and said, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm here at Princeton Seminary, his question was this, are you a big godder or a small godder? I like that phrase. Are you a big godder or a small godder? 
I mean, if you're just one of the liberals who God is just, you know, out there somewhere, we don't really know kind of stuff, we need to talk. Or are you a person who believes that your God's big enough to deal with any issue, any struggle, when you have a God like that? And because he had a big view, Machen had a big view of God, that goes right over into the whole issue of what does faith look like. Let's just spend a minute on that. Because it talks about that we grow in faith. Now look at this passage real quick. Again, verse 37. David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Paul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. In other words, here's an important thing. Faith doesn't always happen in one big package. Often there's, but when you're particularly a young believer and you're struggling, you take a small step of faith. And when you see how God works, sometimes you're willing to take a bigger step of faith. And then you go through a really hard time and you don't know what's going to happen and you see God come out and you go, okay, I got a bigger step of faith. Now think about this. David's told us twice, I took out a bear and I took out a lion. Now imagine if he'd stayed home the whole time, he'd never seen a bear or, or a lion, and his dad said, hey, they want you to go kill a lion up there. They want you to go kill a giant up there. What? I've never killed anything in my life. In other words, the fact is, First of all, he went and he killed a bear. That kind of gave him some courage to realize, I guess I could do it. He was willing to take on a lion. In other words, he was taking steps along the way that he realized, yeah, I, I can see how God was here. And God was here. And if he's here, I'll bet he can be here to help me in my need and my struggle. And so what you see, growing in faith is often a process, not an event. And as we grow, we grow with much more faith to be able to say, this seems to me like it's impossible, but God is the God of the impossible. And it's saying we grow as we go. Here's a quote I wanted to give you right here. I don't know this guy who wrote at Cockerton, but it says this. Faith does not grow by being pulling up again to see how our faith is getting on. Faith grows when, let us say, when we look steadily toward God for the supply of all of our needs and concentrate on him. That is a nice quote. Since Lee is writing it down, I'll say it one more time. Faith does not grow by pulling it up again and again to see how faith is getting on. Faith grows when we look steadily toward God for the supply of all our needs and concentrate on him. That is a good quote. And we ask God, Lord, you know our struggles. You know at times our faith is not there. But would you help us to grow our faith so we could be women and men who know him and love him? This passage is a good one for us. All probably everybody here, if we went around the room and said, what are the challenges you're facing now? We'd have a room full of challenges. Issues, struggles, hurts. And this passage is reminding saying, hey, wait a minute, how big is your God? And not only how big is your God, but how big now is your faith now that you understand how big your God is? And so we ask God, God, would you grow my faith? It's dangerous to say that, by the way. God said, let me give you some opportunities where you can learn to see where you really believe that or not. What you proclaim with your mouth, we'll see if you really can complain it, play that in your heart. Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, such a passage we've known for many of us for, since for years. And we just pray, Father, that you would be at work, that we would be big godders, people who believe we have a great God who's worthy of our worship, and we pray, Father, that in that, because of that, that we would have great faith in you. 
Lord, we would pray that for us as individuals and us as a church family, that you would grow our faith, that we become more and more confident of your goodness to your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.